Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul." men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is our desire to live it, to understand it, to rejoice in it. And I pray that uh, You would uh, take this Word and quicken it to our hearts by faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. A preacher came to the breakfast table and he had a cut on his cheek and his wife asked him what had happened and he said, well... 
When I was uh, shaving this morning, I was concentrating so much on the sermon that I cut myself and his wife joked with him and said, well, maybe you ought to concentrate on shaving and cut your sermons. And uh, (laughs) that's sort of what we did last week. We cut the sermon in half. We didn't make it any shorter, but um, we did cut it in half. But when you think of everything that's in Acts chapter 15, you could park on this passage for a long time. Uh, There are doctrines of salvation, uh, Presbyterian church government, eschatology, conflict resolution. There are several doctrines that you can uh, uh, find here that I think are very fruitful for study. And what we've been doing is taking two or three of these themes and mixing it together with the doctrine of conflict resolution. And we've been emphasizing the conflict resolution part, and we're going to end that today, uh, the last uh, part of that subject. And last week, we looked at the Chinese word for uh, conflict, wei, qi, and it's made up of two parts, wei meaning danger and qi meaning opportunity. And we saw it's really a bad thing to be focused on only one or the other of these uh, two parts of the equation. Some people are so focused on the danger part of conflict, they just shy away from all conflict because they don't want to get into danger. And others are so parked on the opportunity side that uh, they're constantly picking fights. And so we said we really do need to avoid both of those aspects. We then looked at 16 factors that complicated the debate and made it really difficult for people to wrap their heads around this. It's no wonder to me that there was confusion on the subject and conflict. In Ephesians 2-3, through 3, Paul made clear this was a mystery that had not been revealed Uh, in the Old Testament. And Paul said that's one of the reasons why they were bringing so much revelation through the apostles and through the prophets. It was to help the church uh, buy into this new concept that Jew and Gentile are part of one body without Gentiles becoming Jews, that they are... uh, This was not something revealed in the Old Testament. They had to adapt to a new reality. And I won't repeat what I said about all of the theological and emotional and... Uh, personal and cultural issues that divided them. But I think those issues are important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, because I think they still guide our theology, still guide our practice. And then secondly, because they give us hope. And I think they give us hope because if the first century church that had such a messed up, complicated, complex uh, issue like this could settle it to the point that in verse 22... It says the whole church was pleased with the decision, uh, then it ought to give us hope that we can deal with our complicated issues as well. And so a good chunk of the sermon was devoted to uncovering necessary ingredients for resolving complex disagreements. We looked at two principles in this chapter related to fairness and how we present. We looked at four essentials found in this chapter for achieving procedural satisfaction. And I cannot emphasize enough how important procedural satisfaction really is. You're not going to get anywhere if you do not give uh, some of that procedural aspect that we looked at. We then looked at five essentials found in this chapter for achieving psychological satisfaction in your debates. Uh, What verse 22 is talking about. If you had a discussion or a debate with other people, and at the end of the debate, even though the other side lost, they come up and they shake your hand and they say, you know, this was a great debate and I really appreciate the way you handled it. You've done something major. I mean, that's great that you've been able to accomplish that. And um, 
I won't remind you of uh, the other necessary ingredients that we looked at. Uh, I guess what we're going to need to do is just put all these sermons together uh, to get the full picture. But we've arrived at point E. If we're going to be effective in resolving complicated disagreements, we've got to get better at knowing the difference between biblical absolutes and uh, personal interests. And I think too many times we confuse those two. Now, there's nothing wrong with personal interests. Uh, there are times where the Scripture, I, would, I think, indicates we ought to try to have both the personal in- interests and the biblical absolutes achieved. Some people get the idea we always need to sacrifice our personal interests, and it's just not true. And I'll just give you an example here. In Matthew 10... Verses 32 through 33, he gives us an absolute in the discussion of persecution, the destruction of our bodies. He said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Now, some early Christians thought that this meant they had to just turn themselves into the authorities because otherwise they would not be confessing Christ before men. They would be denying Him by fleeing. And so there were a lot of people who actually walked up to the magistrate's office and they said, we're Christians, we're not going to deny Christ. And they got arrested and tortured and executed. And you got to admire their bravery. There were literally thousands of these Christians who deliberately became martyrs. And the reason they became martyrs is they thought this is the only way we can avoid failing to confess him and avoid denying Jesus. And if you're captured, obviously, you have to confess Christ. You cannot deny him. But there are a lot of different options that are out there. No one likes to be tortured. Uh, that's a, an interest that we would have. Avoid torture. Avoid getting killed. Avoid having our families uh, becoming poverty-stricken and destitute because... You know, we're no longer around to provide for them. But the Bible gives quite a few options which allow personal interests to be pursued. In fact, the same chapter, I can't believe that they overlooked this in their reading, but the exact same chapter, Christ commands people to flee from persecution, even fleeing from city to city to avoid the authorities. Here's some other options. Acts 22, Paul used the law against persecutors. Acts 23, he appealed to a friendly magistrate against an unfriendly magistrate. Acts 25, he appeals to a higher court. And then when it comes to conflicts with believers, there's still a lot of different options we have in balancing biblical absolutes and personal interests. Uh, one situation might call for ignoring the issue for a time. That's 1 Peter 4.8. Uh, while another calls for a rebuke. Luke 17.3. And another requires giving in and being willingly defrauded. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Another situation might call for negotiation. Matthew 18, 15. Or mediation, verse 16. Or binding arbitration. 1 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5. Or taking it to a church court. I bring those up because many times when we are confronted with a win-lose situation on biblical absolutes, We become blinded to the fact there are other options out there for how we handle this. Our emotions get involved because we're vigorously trying to defend what we consider to be biblically right. And we become blind to the fact that the exact same goal can be achieved sometimes through other ways. 
And that's one of the reasons why I had some of the family uh, conference table packets from Jay Adams on the back table there. Uh, It's because this is kind of like Robert's Rules of Order are artificial. This is kind of an artificial way to um, allow objective discussion to occur. Some of those options, hopefully, to come to the surface uh, through your brainstorming and to take as much emotion out of the discussion as possible. Let me give you a modern illustration of this. From 1987 to 1996, in the PCA's General Assembly, it seemed like there was nonstop firefights uh, at the General Assembly. Now, there were a lot of good things that were happening as well, but wow, there were a lot of fights uh, going on. We had at least five different Reformed perspectives, different, you could call them factions, I guess, within the denomination. And when they were debating things, they were coming at it from different assumptions, different perspectives. A lot of times these pastors were talking past one another. A lot of misunderstandings, a lot of emotion sometimes. Um, There was several times where a guy would get more heated than he should have at the microphone. And half an hour later, he'd come back and apologize, ask for forgiveness for having spoken out of turn. There were times where the assembly rebuked a person for the way in which he would speak. And I hated being at those assemblies. I was very uncomfortable there. But they were very important for hashing out these uh, critical issues. I remember one fight in particular in 1994. It looked like it was going to split the denomination into two parts. It started with the Chen case, judicial case 93-3, in which the General Assembly overturned the discipline of a local church and overturned the presbytery, which agreed with this discipline. And they didn't do it because they said, oh, this person doesn't deserve to be disciplined. What was driving them was a fear that there could be judicial lawsuits in these kinds of cases outside the church. And because the denomination is a corporation, we're not as a local church, but there could be liability to the denomination as a whole. And and so there was uh, arguments along these lines that were coming out. Now, if it had just been this particular case, it may not have been such a crisis issue, but the reasoning of the court Uh, from our perspective, was completely removing discipline from the church. There was a minority opinion on the court that was quite excellent, but it looked like the majority of that panel was using this to push a political agenda. Uh, That prompted men to line up for several hours to sign a protest at the front of the assembly, but the debate branched way beyond that. Uh, branched out into the general philosophy of discipline, church connectionalism, uh, church government. And the strange thing is, there were good men on both sides of that debate. In fact, there were legitimate concerns on both sides of that debate. Not everybody was willing to admit it at the time, but in hindsight, there were legitimate concerns there, but they had become so deeply entrenched in what they considered to be their biblical position that uh, they had a hard time seeing what was going on. There was a lot of personal interests wrapped up in there, but they didn't present those in their arguments. They were presenting pretty much the biblical um, uh, absolutes. Now, as I mentioned, there were at least five different factions who took sides for very different reasons. We didn't quite have a majority, even though there were two factions who uh, were together on this issue. 
But because of the critical nature of this decision, the denomination decided we need to put a study committee together and try to figure out what kind of recommendations we can give. Now, I talked to quite a few people at the General Assembly. I didn't find one person at the Assembly that thought this was going to do any good because this had been a debate, had been lingering for quite some time. O ye of little faith. Uh, Even on the committee, the committee members that I talked to, they didn't think there was any hope of resolving this. It seemed like an unsolvable riddle, an unsolvable problem that they were stuck with. But they all wanted to be on the committee because, man, there were high stakes involved in this. Now, based on the charts that are in your outline, I'll tell you what was going on. Each side had a bunch of goals that they wanted to preserve at all costs. Uh, They were over here on the left-hand side of the chart on the mark uh, called competition. And when you're over here, you're bound and determined you're going to win even if it means the other person is going to lose. Now, not all competition is a, a win-lose situation, but almost always it is. Uh, somebody's going to be the loser on this. And you aren't interested in their concerns and their fears and their personal issues. It's a biblical issue. That's that, you know, and we're going to move forward. So that's where they were at on that. But God did a neat work over the next two years with the realization that close friends would be divided. People began to wonder, why is that really intelligent person over there in such disagreement with my biblical position. After all, I'm right. (laughs) Why are they so in disagreement? They knew the other side was not liberal. They knew the other side wanted to follow the scriptures, even though the rhetoric didn't always um, show that. Uh, They were wondering what was going on. Now, thankfully, the committee, before they met, spent a long season of prayer as time in prayer, and I think that set the tone for what happened uh, afterwards. Uh, There was uh, one of our guys, I believe it was Dr. Morton Smith, asked the men on the other side a question that was something to this effect, not these exact words, but something to this effect. Before we discuss the judicial procedures, which it seems hopeless for us to come to agreement on, I want want to understand what is it that you fear? What are your concerns if our side was to prevail? I want to understand your fears, your concerns. And what was going on in asking that question is they were uh, trying to look at the relationship side of this quadrant. Uh, The one who asked this question had no intention of giving up the goals. If you go up the side here, that's pursuing your goals. You go over to the right over here, it's pursuing relationships. He had no intention of giving up the goals, but for the first time, the men on this committee were beginning to ask the questions related to relationship. Um, They probably were not thinking that they could accommodate anything. Because if they accommodated to the other side, they felt they would be compromising a biblical principle. Uh, And they were looking, is there any way that we could have accommodation, compromise, collaboration? Obviously, collaboration would be the best because that's a win-win kind of a situation. Well, to continue our story, leaders from the other group gave two or three reasons why they had genuine fear about our side winning. Our men assured them when they gave those reasons, we have no interest in that happening at all. Uh, That is not uh, even part of our equation and we're with you. We don't want that to happen. Uh, 
but we think that uh, these personal concerns need to be addressed in a different way. Then our side proceeded to share what our concerns were. If your side wins, here's what we think will happen. One of which was we think discipline will be completely destroyed uh, within the denomination. And at least some on the other side were uh, surprised. And then rather than trying to decide who's right and who's wrong on this issue, what they instead tried to do is look for potential compromises, non-principial compromises uh, that could allay the fears of the other party and uh, make them feel like uh, their interests were being met. And remarkably, because of the way they were showing concern for each other's best interests, a compromise was worked out that neither side believed violated any biblical position and both sides were very, very happy with. Uh, sometimes compromise is a biblical thing that you can do, not compromise of the Bible, but compromise of your uh, your own positions, but what this really ended up being is a total collaboration. Uh, it wasn't perfect. I, I think everybody would have said, well, the perfect solution would have been over here, but they didn't feel that any biblical principle was being violated and uh, they felt that uh, all of their concerns had been allayed. And so when this committee's report on judicial procedures was brought to the General Assembly in 2006, it was adopted to everyone's amazement. Now, last week I said it was a unanimous decision uh, because I hadn't seen any hands being raised, but I looked in the minutes this week and there were 17 people who voted against it. But still, in that assembly of 1,000 people, that was a remarkable movement forward. Now, I did find it very interesting that not everybody voted on this. Uh, there were a number of people who had already left the assembly, who had voted before, but left the assembly and perhaps later left the denomination. Now, what was going on there is they were on this side of the equation. They were on the avoidance part of the quadrant. They were no longer interested in pursuing their goals within this denomination, and they were no longer interested in pursuing relationship with each other. And I should say that even that can be a biblical um, uh, thing to pursue. And let me give you an example. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Okay, that's as clear a command as you can get. That's saying that uh, in that situation, you need to be down in this part of the, uh, part of the qu quadrant. And I've given this chart to show every one of the X's on that box can at one time or another be the biblical solution to what you are dealing with. But the best part, this is probably the least uh, beneficial usually, the best would be collaboration where both sides' interests and biblical absolutes can be met. And back to our story, I was just blown away by how a seemingly impossible task that had been given to this committee was achieved. Why? Because they were distinguishing now between biblical absolutes and what are personal interests that we perhaps can give in on. And they ended up not even having to give in on those things. Well, that's what happened in Acts chapter 15. And that's what I want to focus on for the remainder of this sermon. There were biblical absolutes in this chapter. No one felt that they could compromise on those. The converted Pharisees could appeal to biblical absolutes. So could the apostles. Uh, one of those groups had misunderstood the biblical absolutes, but it was discussed head on. So what I want to uh, start with is, are there times 
Are there issues that you must win no matter what, where you need to be up on this competition side? And I say, absolutely, yes, there are. And the, the issue here that they were competing on, at least initially, was the absolute authority and integrity of God's holy revelation. Both sides held this in common and they didn't think the other side was. They thought the other side was compromising the integrity of God's Word. And so, ironically, they have a common starting point and yet they think that's the very point on which they are divided. I think, to me, it sounds like some of the uh, reform debates that go on where there are people who are you know, brothers in the Lord. They're both following the Scripture and yet they become enemies because they think the other has compromised God's Word. So they have a start, common starting point, and that's not always the case. I've mentioned before that there are pastors that I've had to completely break fellowship with because they will not abandon their doctrine that the Bible has errors in it. That, to me, is a fundamental that you cannot compromise because if you don't have an infallible word, there isn't anything in life that's infallible. You don't have any absolutes to start with. Now, the Pharisees had a lot of scriptures they could appeal to. Look at verse 1, even though that's exaggerated. In part, it was based on the Old Testament. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, after the huge debate in Antioch, uh, and we saw in our chronology, that happened between verses 2 and 4 of this chapter, after the huge debate that Galatians 1 and 2 talks about, it seems that these guys softened a little bit. Uh, look at verse 5. Uh, they leave the salvation part of the equation out. They say it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They don't say necessary to salvation because that would be impossible to prove from the Old Testament. And I think some of that came out of that discussion. Maybe they still believed it, but they don't state it. But they do say it's necessary. And there were plenty of scriptures they could appeal to. Let me just tick off a few of the ones. Genesis 17 has not only Ishmael and Abraham being circumcised, but all of his Gentile servants. And in the previous chapter, chapter 14, we see that there were 318 trained servants trained for war. So there was a lot of males that had been born in his household who were Gentiles. In fact, that was the most massive number of circumcision, hundreds who were being circumcised, only two of whom were descendant, well, were Abraham and his descendant Ishmael. Only two. And so, Genesis 17 was quite clear. The only way these Gentiles could be into the covenant is through circumcision. And verse 14 says, if they are not circumcised, they will be cut off from the covenant. So, that's a powerful text that the Pharisees could appeal to. Genesis 34 is the case of Dinah. In verse 22, it says, Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And here's the argument they could bring. According to this passage, you can't be one people in the church unless you're circumcised. Okay? They, they um, granted, maybe Paul's made his point, and we're, we're agreeing these guys can be saved, but they can't be part of one people. Maybe they've bought into the dispensational idea that God has two peoples and two purposes in history, and we'll grant that, but they can't be one people. These Jews could also appeal to Exodus 4, 
where Moses is almost killed by an angel for refusing to circumcise his son. Or Exodus 12, where foreigners are not allowed to partake of the Lord's table until they get circumcised. And so they could say these Gentiles should not be permitted to come to the Lord's table. They're not circumcised. We've got Scripture to prove it. Or Ezekiel 44, verses 7 and 9. When you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, that they broke, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Case closed. Gentiles have to get circumcised. And we saw they got pretty emotional about this. When Paul was teaching uh, otherwise, it was a butting of heads over biblical absolutes. So I think we need to give them credit. They were using the Scriptures. But the apostles could appeal to Revelation 2. Last week, we read from Ephesians 3 that this doctrine that Jew and Gentile were part of one body was a mystery that had not been revealed in the Old Testament as it has now been revealed through the apostles and through the prophets. But in verses 7 through 11 of Acts 15, uh, Peter appeals to the crystal clear revelation that God gave in Acts chapter 10 that we may no longer ostracize uncircumcised Gentiles. We can no longer call them unclean. They're baptized. They're included in the covenant. They are one people with Israel. Look at verse 14 and how um, uh, um, James summarizes Peter. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In the Old Testament, that was not true. The Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, were put in contrast with the people of God. But now here's many ethne, many Gentiles, many peoples who are made part of the one people of God. That's the mystery that Ephesians 2 through 3 talks about. <clears throat> and so Peter appeals to the uh, clear revelation given in Acts 10, then re-argued in Acts 11. And then Paul and Barnabas are given the floor in verse 12. Paul's book of Galatians, we saw, was just recently published. We don't know how far it was distributed. Maybe it was at this point only distributed to the Galatians. But Galatians makes it very clear that the oral, at least the oral arguments of that clear, infallible revelation of God have been communicated to every one of these people. And Paul pointed out a number of things. One, that there were Gentiles who were saved before the time of Abraham. Abraham himself was saved long before he was circumcised. 24 years, in fact. Genesis 12, he's saved. That's 24 years before Genesis 17 when he is circumcised. And he gave other hints uh, in, in that book that uh, circumcision was a temporary provision. And so in verse 12 of this chapter, Paul and Barnabas are given the floor to communicate more. And we're not told everything that they say. Then James gives his exposition of Amos 9, 11 through 12. And that's a marvelous text on eschatology. I love that passage. But I only want you to notice three points relevant to what we're talking about this morning. First, verse 17 indicates that Gentiles can be called by God's name and still be Gentiles. See, if they were circumcised, they wouldn't be called Gentiles anymore. 
uh, during the time of Moses, it was not until Gentiles were baptized, circumcised, and uh, became Jews that they could call themselves by the name of Jehovah. For example, Esther 8.17 says, Then many of the people of the land became Jews. That was the only way they could become into the people of God. But Amos 9 prophesies a time when the Gentiles would not be forced to be circumcised to be part of God's people. Now, that's only hinted at. It's not said explicitly. But the fact they're still called Gentiles after they're saved, I think, indicates that fact. The second thing to notice is that God was not blindsided. This was not a change of plan. Verse 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. Uh, Even though in the Old Testament not all of the details of this mystery were revealed, most of it was not, there was at least hints that shows, according to James, this new revelation was totally consistent with the old. The third thing to notice is that James uses the word prophets, plural, in verse 15. So it's not just Amos who has this hint. You find it all throughout the Old Testament prophets. Um, Isaiah 60 prophesies Gentiles getting saved subsequent to their salvation. It speaks of them serving God but still being called Gentiles. Uh, Isaiah 66 speaks of the Gentiles uh, not only being saved but nursed by the Jews, brought up by the Jews, being one with the Jews. And then in verse 21 it says God is going to take from the Gentiles and make them Levites and priests. So uh, to me it's a pretty remarkable hint. Isaiah 19 speaks of a day in our future yet when Israel, Egypt, and Assyria will be saved. Verse 25 says, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Israel the work of my hands, and Israel, Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. So Egypt is still called Egypt, and yet it's called my people just as much as Israel was. Only hints in the Old Testament, yet totally consistent with this new revelation. Uh, my favorite passage is Psalm 87. I think I'm just going to skip over reading that. But you ought to read it sometime where it talks about Gentiles still being Gentiles and yet they're said to be born in Israel, in Zion, and part of Israel. Now, the reason I bring this up, I know it's kind of heavy and complicated, but the reason I bring this up is not only so that you can see a reconciliation between Old and New Testament, but I want you to consider the whole aspect of people who are absolutely convinced their position is biblical and yet being wrong. Uh, We can be wrong, and yet we can quote all kinds of scriptures. And part of the reason is because we can mess up on the area of hermeneutics. Uh, There were uh, some hermeneutical problems here. They had yanked the passage out of context. First rule, context is king. Don't take a passage out of context. The passages that the Pharisees appeal to were intended to be from Abraham to Christ. They were never intended to be part of the New Testament. And even in the time that they were given in the Old Testament, that was so clear. Uh, We're not going to look today at the ceremonial laws of verses 20 and 29, but if you look at Leviticus 17 through 18, you will see those four laws and only those four laws were applied to both Jew and Gentile. All of the others were only applied to the Jews. And so he's not doing anything unique, anything uh, different right now. What the apostles are doing, they're being sensitive to the context. It's the Pharisees yanking it out of context. Second, our interpretation has to fit with the rest of Scripture. The moment you try to explain away a verse, because it doesn't fit with Calvinism, it doesn't fit with this, you know you got your interpretation wrong. 
You cannot explain away Scriptures. They need to dovetail together. All of Scripture is one integrated whole. The third principle of interpretation is that we need to be careful not to carelessly proof text. Just because a verse sounds like it's going to fit your argument, don't just yank it out of context. Look in the context and see if it, if it fits. I think one of the, the favorite jokes that ministers give of taking you know, proof texting too far is the person who's wanting the Lord's guidance in his life and he closes his eyes and says, Lord, please guide me what I should do. And he opens it up, puts his finger in and he reads, says, and Judas hanged himself. He says, well, that doesn't sound like it has any relevance to me. So he tries it again, puts his finger down and it says, go and do likewise. He says, woo, this is getting a little bit nervous. So he closes the Bible, says, Lord, please, I really need your guidance. And he opens it up with his eyes open, but he looks at the first verse he sees and he says, what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> we cannot take passages out of context. And that was the issue with the Pharisees. And so, out of context means look at the audience, the time period. There's a lot of factors. And then finally, when it comes to discussing absolutes with each other, we need to exercise humility. Be teachable. Be open-minded. Don't put yourself into a box where there's only one option. I'm going to win this or I'm going to sink the ship trying. Because there's a lot of people that do try to sink the ship in trying to win their arguments. We've got to uh, come with humility. And so keep that in the back of your mind. I may be wrong on this. I don't think I am, but I may be. I need to be teachable. And if you can show me from the Scripture, I'm willing to change. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through all of the absolutes I've listed there, but let me just quickly point out there were absolutes that had to be handled very carefully by both sides. One of the absolutes was that there were blood-bought, spirit-filled, God-pleasing saints who these Judaizers were shoving out of the church. They were not treating as Christians and it grieved God because Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. It was something that they were not going to tolerate. And the irony of it was the church had not bucked against this too much. They did in chapter 11. But Cornelius and his family, all of his relatives had been admitted to the church. He was not going to retroactively kick them out. And so in verses 7 through 10, he tells them, cut it out. Don't do this any longer. And we've had to do the same thing with uh, those who are part of the identity movement. I'm amazed how many there are in the Midwest who have come to the previous church, have come to this church, and they like a lot of what we have done, but they are so racist in their views of, uh, of blacks and other races. And we cannot tolerate uh, racism in this congregation. According to Peter, it was a testing of God. Another absolute was that God alone could read the hearts. And for us to try to do so is to play God. And you can see that in verse uh, 8. It says, God, who knows the hearts. Pharisees thought they knew better. They said, these guys are not saved. It's clear to us that they are not. And Peter says, God's already declared them to be saved. He has his favor upon, uh, upon these people. Now, there are lots of arguments that could be settled and over and finished if people would quit judging motives and quit reading hearts and leave that business to God. Another thing that was clear is stated in verse 10. God made it impossible to keep the ceremonial law perfectly and for a minority of these Jews to be trying to base our salvation on perfect keeping of the ceremonial law was hypocrisy in the highest. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
He's saying, in effect, get serious, guys. Is there anybody here that can actually tell me that you have perfectly kept all of the ceremonial law that you've never become unclean? There's no way. If you so much as step on a dead bug without realizing it, you can become unclean. If a, a fly settles on you, if you have an emission, if you, there's all kinds of things you could make you unclean. God had set them in a, with so many laws around them to show them it's impossible to save yourself. You are unclean. You need a savior. And so to make this as the basis, you'd have to keep the, the ceremonial laws perfectly. And he says you cannot do it. Another thing that the apostles were not planning to budge on is no one can be saved by law keeping. Not just the ceremonial law, but any law keeping. Verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It was a do or die biblical absolute. Justification by faith alone, through grace alone, based on the merits of Christ alone, in a way that God alone gets the glory. A sixth absolute was that God was indeed powerfully at work among the Gentiles apart from the ceremonial law. And to deny that was to deny Paul's apostleship. In fact, it was to deny that the kingdom had come and that the Messiah had come. And so the, the point in, in bringing these up is there are biblical issues to fight about. Don't get on the case of those who are engaged in theological debate. Now, if they're doing it with ungodly attitudes, yes, get on their case. But theological soundness is important. But there are also personal interests that were valid concerns and because I dealt with that in the first sermon, I won't go into that in depth, but there was a danger uh, from the perspective of these uh, Jews of being persecuted by fellow Jews. We talked about the, this was the height of the time in 49 AD when the zealots were lynching fellow Jews. Any fellow Jews who were compromising ceremonial law or were eating with fellow uh, Gentiles. And some of these people were thinking, you know, it'd be a lot easier if these Gentiles would get, just get circumcised. It's a small concession to make for the safety of all of us. Now, we've already seen they can make some concessions, but to mandate circumcision would be to destroy that new body of Jew and Gentile that was the mystery that Ephesians talks about. That was a principle they could not budge on. And so, when dealing with this personal issue, the danger of persecution is juxtaposed with testing God. Verse 10, why do you test God? And so, it's sort of like writing a column. You've got the pros and you've got the cons. Okay, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of cons over here. There's a, a problem. There's a danger that your fellow ze uh, Jewish zealots might persecute you. There's a danger there. But there's also a danger over here that you might offend God. And so when you put it that way, which danger are you willing to risk? It's pretty easy to know which one is, is the one to choose. The second Jewish interest was simply a huge misunderstanding. I got a story from a lady in Kentucky. She said, after directory assistance gave me my boyfriend's new telephone number, I dialed him and got a woman. Is Mike there? I asked. He's in the shower, she responded. Please tell him his girlfriend phoned, I said, and hung up. When he didn't call back, I dialed again. This time a man answered. This is Mike. You're not my boyfriend, I exclaimed. I know, he replied. That's what I've been trying to tell my wife for the past half hour. <laughs> wow, big misunderstanding. But there was that much emotional misunderstanding that was going on with Paul's ministry among the Gentiles. These Jews were misrepresenting him and saying, 
You're destroying Jewish culture. You're forcing Jews to become Gentiles. And in Acts 21, he said, it's a lie. It's absolutely not true. My concern is to bring Jew and Gentile together in one body while preserving their respective cultures. And so it was a very legitimate concern that's addressed very pastorally by this council. They couldn't get in on the circumcision question, but they could, without violating any biblical principle, say, here's four things that the Gentiles need to be involved in. And by the way, those, those laws as given in Leviticus 17 through 18 were always imposed on Gentiles that lived in the land of Israel. Always. Whereas other ceremonial laws were not. So it's not coming up with something new. It's, it's perfectly logical. And I hope to speak on that later because that's a grossly misinterpreted passage. Third personal concern was comfort. Uh, comfort. It's much more comfortable to do things the way that you've always done things. And Peter's response in verse 10 is, look, Neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to fully keep these ceremonial laws. Uh, you know, if you're talking about comfort, get real. It'd be a whole lot more comfortable to get rid of these things. But we are so resistant to change, especially the older we get. We're so resistant to change. We would much rather do it the hard way than to do it the new way. I've got relatives who are very resistant to new technology and they much rather do it the way it's been done for hundreds of years, even though it makes them do it two to three times slower. Now, if it's just a hobby, that's great. No problem. You can do it two or three times slower. But if you're in business, that's going to make you less and less competitive uh, with others. <clears throat> and so discomfort with change can be juxtaposed with realism about the disadvantages of what you're comfortable with. Galatians 2. 11 through 21 highlighted a sinful interest that Peter, Barnabas, and other Jews had, and that was wanting to look good in the eyes of their friends and fellow Jews. And shame can make us do the strangest things. It definitely made Paul and Barnabas do strange things uh, in Galatians 2. They were willing to be hypocrites rather than to face the shame of friends thinking poorly of them. Uh, the Smiths uh, confessed this sin in their family tradition. Uh, they were very proud of their family line. It went all the way back to the Mayflower and some of their ancestors were pastors and senators and Wall Street gurus. And it was such a great history that they wanted to write it up, kind of put it in a book and be a legacy they could pass on to their children. So they hired a, a pretty good author, but they were really concerned. They said, you know, we've got this great uncle George and we don't want the whole book to be spoiled with what he did because this Uncle George um, was a criminal and he was executed in an electric chair. And when they talked with him, he said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll handle it and you won't have anything to worry about. So anyway, they uh, published, uh, had the book published. And as soon as they got it, they opened it up to see what he wrote. And there they read, George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. <laughs> It was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> now, I'm sure the guy that gave that to me totally made that all up. But the, but the point is that sometimes trying to hide the truth is going to be far more embarrassing down the road than if you just owned up to it right away. And that was the way it was with Peter and Barnabas. They were boldly confronted by Paul for their hypocrisy, and it was embarrassing. And so not all interests are legitimate interests, but what you can do is you're negotiating with these people is point out it's far better to own up to it now 
uh, and face the music now than to make the wrong decision and be even more embarrassed down the road. A fifth interest of at least some of the Jews was that they didn't want to compromise the Scripture. Uh, they had a legitimate interest in, in, in saying we have to follow the Bible and it's hypocritical to call Gentiles part of Israel. Paul's epistles show that baptism took the place of circumcision. And I think James does a good job of showing that Peter's revelation of salvation to the Gentiles does not make them a separate people. They're part of the same people. Aren't two saved peoples. There's only one saved people. And so that interest could only be answered through theological dialogue and Paul's epistles go to great lengths in doing that. Fear of offending God was answered with Paul showing the incredible acts of God's power among the Gentiles in verse 12. Obviously, God was not offended with them. But more importantly, it was answered through the commands that God gave to Peter. Peter didn't want to do it initially. He didn't want to fellowship with these Gentiles. God said, you have to do it. Do not call unclean what I have cleansed. And so, in effect, they're saying it's more likely that you will offend God if you ignore His clear commands in Acts 11, Acts 10, and in this chapter. A seventh interest that the Jews had was that they didn't want to offend the social sensibilities of other Jews and thus lose opportunities to witness. And it was a very legitimate concern that's addressed in the letter. It's also made explicit in verse 21. And so what they're doing is they're answering theological questions with clear theology. It doesn't matter how many personal interest things that you may throw at me, you know, on a theological issue. If you can't show it in the Scripture, it doesn't faze me. Uh, we have to answer theological issues with theological with, with, with Scripture. But the personal interest questions can be answered by both. Now, what about the Gentiles? Um, they have concerns as well. Verse 19 says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Talk about a hazing ceremony. Uh, these ceremonial laws were designed to make it as difficult as it could be for these Gentiles to become Christians. It was just really, really tough. And Paul was saying, I understand your concern about wanting to be sensitive to the Jews. I do too. I'm evangelizing the Jews. And when I'm with a Jew, I act like a Jew. I eat like a Jew. But you guys need to be consistent. We are also called by Christ to evangelize the Gentiles. And when you're with the Romans, you need to act like the Romans. So let's not put a big stumbling block in their place by insisting on the ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws, as I've mentioned, uh, Leviticus 17 through 18 were... Uh, have always been applied to the Gentiles. Now, one of the biggest Gentile interests was to be respected and no longer treated as second-class citizens. It's hard to live constantly under racial prejudice. And this council did much to alleviate that. Another question that we won't beat to death is, will we Gentiles have to get circumcised, become Jews? Unanimous answer is no. Will we have to give up bacon and sausage? Jerusalem council said no. We've already dealt with the last two interests last week, so I won't explain those. But let me end by just giving some summary principles on how we can tease apart and try to resolve that, 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 that blending of biblical absolutes and personal interests just like they did. One illustration that's often used in conflict resolution books, probably a fictitious story, but it's about parents who are trying to settle an argument between their children. The two children are fighting over the last orange in the house. You've heard that one. And um, they're just arguing back and forth as to who needs it. And the exasperated parent just 
takes the orange, cuts it in half, and gives them each a half. And that may seem like a good resolution, just share and share alike, but the one eats the orange, throws away the orange peel, and the other one doesn't want the inside of the orange, takes the outside peel and is grating it to make cookies out of. Now, wanted the whole orange peel, but had to do with half of it. Now, as silly as that illustration may be, it does show that there's a lot of issues that are simply not either-or dilemmas. Either I get the whole orange or you get the whole orange. It may be I get to eat it and you get to use the orange peel. An English teacher was trying to explain the problem with double negatives. And he said, in English, a double negative forms a positive. In some languages, such as Russian, a double negative is still a negative. However, teacher continued, there's no language wherein a double positive can form a negative. And a voice in the back of the room piped up, yeah, right. <laughs> no matter what position you get, you, you might get it later on. But no matter what absolute you give, you're going to find somebody who's going to argue against you. But my point is, look for options. Look for alternative solutions. I don't know how many times I've had couples coming for counseling and they think there's only two options and they're so deeply entrenched because they think the other option is intolerable for themselves. They're blinded by their emotions. We need to be thinking outside the box. Second, realize that because of sinful human nature, there may be situations where people will not abandon their interests no matter how many biblical principles you might throw at them. Now, they're sinfully doing that, but we need to take that into account. And sometimes you almost have to deal with the personal interest before their eyes are going to be clear enough to see what the real issue is. Now, one book wrote, not long ago, a woman administrator at a university, angry and tearful, went into the president's office to contest her termination. Within the first five minutes, she made it known that she was extremely upset and intended to sue the university for sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, and unlawful termination of her employment. A typical reaction from many administrators would have been to say, fine, we'll see you in court. The administrator might have hoped to discourage the woman's charges by pointing out it would be years before the issue would be settled by a court of law. In this particular case, Instincts were restrained as the lawyer administrator searched for the reasons behind the woman's anger. In doing so, he learned that she really did not disagree with the basis of the termination, but she had several needs in securing her next position, needs that had not been recognized by those handling the personnel matter. She really was not interested in the lawsuit, but such a threat was the only way she knew to express her dissatisfaction and draw attention to her interests. By searching for the reasons behind the former employee's positions, the lawyer administrator gained an understanding of her needs, which in this case could be satisfied without the university spending additional money. Months later, she wrote the administrator, and after describing her new position, ended the note by saying, thanks for all your help. There is no doubt years of litigation were avoided as a direct result of the administrator's search for reasons behind the teacher's position. I think it was a sinful reaction on on her part, but her mind was so clouded by her fears of being unemployed, her need to get another job, she wasn't even considering uh, being rational about the, the other issues. Now, that story also illustrates the next two points. Third tip, it's often wise to resist the temptation to discuss issues before uncovering what the interests are. When I was in China, a lady asked me, uh, a question related to how to make her child obey. My child just never obeys me. 
Now, I could have immediately given 15 you know, principles of child rearing to her, but I spent the time asking. In fact, I spent several minutes asking questions. Jonathan was with me there. And at the time, he, later on, he told me, well, I was wondering, Dad, why you didn't just immediately dive in and answer her question because it was so easy. And then later he realized, oh, it's a good thing because this young person who was not obeying her, uh, was, she, was he in his 30s? 20-somethings or 30, somewhere in that range. He was not a believer. He was not living in the home. And she was being a controlling mother. Now, giving an answer that would apply to a four-year-old who was not obeying would not have been helpful at all to this other person. But the way she asked her question, it sounded like she was dealing with a four-year-old in her home. In the first phrase of verse 7, it's clear that the apostles allowed a long period of discussion before finally coming to a conclusion. See, they wanted to hear all of the interests, all of the uh, complicated issues coming to the surface. A fourth tip is that it's usually wise to find the reasons for why those interests are held in the first place. And you'd be surprised at the number of reasons people will give. In the 1994 General Assembly case that I talked about before, uh, there were several different reasons, some of them conflicting reasons, as to why people voted with the majority. And some of those reasons I could agree with. And some of the reasons I would not uh, have agreed with. Several of the reasons that Jews might have sided with the Judaizers were reasons that could have been just as easily answered by submitting to the apostles. They just didn't realize that there were options that were available. So if you can understand the underlying reason for the interest, sometimes it can help you to solve uh, the interest in a different way. Fifth, ask questions. Listen, be alert to unstated assumptions that they may have. In verse 8, Peter hints at this problem uh, when he indicates God alone knows the heart. Apparently, some people were, uh, you know, had faulty assumptions. And then last week, we looked at several reasons why we need to listen more carefully. Verses 6, 12, and 13. The last tip is search for common interests. Now, surprisingly, they had three common interests that they shared, all of these people. Uh, first one was they all wanted to be faithful to Scripture. Second, they all wanted to see God's kingdom grow. And I think that's obvious from verses 3 and 12. In verse 3, they're thrilled when they hear Paul's testimony of the cool things God's doing among the Gentiles. They want God's kingdom to grow. And in verse 12, they're listening intently. And so the apostles, they capitalize on that common interest. Third, they both were concerned with the obstacles to unbelievers becoming Christians. Now, the Jews tended to focus only on why Jewish unbelievers weren't becoming Christians. Gentiles mostly focusing on why the Gentile believers weren't. But they all had this shared common desire to see the gospel go forth unhindered. And so in verse 31, the Gentiles, they're not troubled at all by the restrictions that are put on their liberty. It didn't bother them. Why? Because they have reached common ground. One last point. Make sure you're not all talk and no action. Some people think if they just talk about these issues, then everything will be okay because they feel better. They've gotten it off their chest. You know, maybe one spouse is just really getting all over the case of another spouse, venting. And because the other person is not being mean-spirited, but's listening and, and carefully processing through that, they think, okay, everything's hunky-dory because they've got it off their chest, but not a single problem has been solved. The Jerusalem Council had follow-through in several ways. First of all, they made a decision 
in verses 19 through 22. Then they wrote a letter in verses 23 through 29. Then they backed up the letter by sending delegates from different factions to show their agreement in verse 30. And then finally, they had Judas and Silas continue to minister among the Gentiles to make sure that all of the problems uh, were resolved and smoothly functioning. See, the more times you talk about problems without having action, the worse it's going to get. And I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. A seemingly impossible standoff between Judaizers and Paul was thoroughly resolved so that verse 22 says it pleased everyone. And that's my desire. That's my goal for every one of you. Now, obviously, this chapter doesn't say everything that could be said. And I've maybe said more than should be said on this. But I hopefully I've given you enough information. It gives you hope that these kinds of difficult situations can be solved. One book that I highly recommend you get. Most of the men in the congregation have already read it. Uh, it's um, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I've read a lot of books on conflict uh, management. That is by far the best. Wonderful, wonderful book. In fact, it's got some. They've got uh, additional materials you can buy for your children uh, that. Uh, are really helpful on that. But I encourage those of you who have not been through the course on peacemaking, I encourage you to buy that and read it. It has just about everything that you will need to resolve conflicts in a godly way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and it is our desire to live it out. We bless You for the privilege. In Jesus' name, Amen.